we are going to now jump in uh, to the Word of God. So stand with me and uh, let's open the Scripture to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. When you have it, say amen. Amen. All right. 10th chapter of Hebrews, we're going to begin reading at the 19th verse, so the middle of the chapter. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Let me read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir, one, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you and before your word. We ask, O oh God that you would speak to us powerfully through your word, through scripture. And Lord, we also ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each life, in each mind, in each heart represented in this place today. And that, Lord, you would speak to us, that you would step on our toes if need be. You would unstop our ears. You would soften our hearts. That you would do the work that only you can do that Jesus Christ might receive maximum glory from our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. When I first, um, when I was a new Christian, I remember beginning to read through the New Testament and getting to the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews was rough. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that. But... Um, I read through the other books and, and pretty much could, you know, I was, I was tracking and I got to the book of Hebrews and I just got confused. I got, uh, I, I didn't know what was going on, what, what was being talked about. And, and the reason for that was because understanding the book of Hebrews, I was not a Hebrew in the first place. I'm not uh, of Jewish uh, heritage in my lineage. And so, and I had not read through and studied the Old Testament well, so I didn't know that much about Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and the sacrificial system and, and the high priesthood and all these things that the book of Hebrews talks about. So when I came to the book of Hebrews, it was, it was puzzling to me. But, but, but let me just say this to you, if, if you're a newer believer, and if you're reading the Old Testament, particularly the best commentary that you'll ever get on the Old Testament. You don't have to go out and buy another book. It's the book of Hebrews. It, it, it is the uh, authorized commentary by the Holy Spirit 
on the book of Hebrews that is infallible and perfect. There are no mistranslations here. There are, are no, no errors here. It tells us uh, about the Old Testament and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every shadow and type that, that, that was used in the Old Testament and that Jesus is, is the fulfillment of all these things. So that's really what the book of Hebrews is about. It was written in uh, somewhere around 64 to 68 A.D., and, and the book was written to uh, Hebrew Christians that were uh, in, in, in some different places. It's really unlike any other epistle in the New Testament. It's more like a sermon. So this is a long sermon uh, that the writer gives to encourage believers to know that they have everything that they need in Jesus Christ and they don't have to go anywhere else. So what I want to speak to you about today, my title is Something to Hold On To. Something to Hold On To. They were in the midst of major persecution. We'll talk about what that was in a little while. But they were going through major persecution at the time. And perhaps you've been through a time in your life when everything felt like it was moving and out of control. Every you like you were in way over your head on on what was happening. One wave after another wave came after you. You've been now you probably haven't been as much as you might think you have in a situation like Job. Right. And we all say, oh, I feel like Job. Why do you feel like Job? Because uh, I don't have the right kind of spaghetti sauce, man. I wanted Prego, but we only have ragu. I'm like, man, you are not like Job. You need to just shut it up right now. You're not going through that much. But, but we've all been through things where we've gone through a lot, and sometimes it feels like everything's moving. What can I hold on to? And, and in, in this book of Hebrews, uh, the, the writer has described the, the old covenant and how Jesus is the superior one. So he starts... Let's just read a couple verses at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, the first few verses of the book. Chapter 1, starting at verse 1, I'll read. He says, Long ago, and in many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. That, that phrase, he's the exact imprint, uh, the word in Greek is character. It means that he is the, the exact representation of, of God himself. He is the essence and nature of God Fully revealed. He says, in days past, he spoke through prophets, but Jesus is greater than any prophet. In the past, uh, angels came and ministered. He's greater than any angel. He, he, in the past, Moses received the law on the mountain of God and led the people uh, through the Red Sea away from their captors. But Jesus is the greater than Moses. Now, to a first century Jew, that was rough. You're going to say he's greater than Moses? Come on, Moses is the man. No, Jesus is so much greater than Moses that you can't even compare the two. 
So he is the, the, the greater one, is Jesus. So not only is he the greater person, but he is, he is the one who is the greater priest. So, so the priests of the Old Covenant, uh, there were different priests that would come in, a different high priest every year. And priests, uh, just like everyone else, would die after a while and they'd have to raise up a, a new crop of priests. But Jesus is one priest for all time. He does the work one time and he's done. It's over. It's finished. So he's the greater priest. But not only is he the priest, but he is also the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice, so the, the, the high priest would go in once a year to the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, and, and the Ark of the Covenant had on top of it a mercy seat that was the wings of two cherubim that came together, and that was the mercy seat, and that was where God chose to, to dwell in Old Testament times so that the people would know that God was among them. Uh, but they would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and they would bring blood of bulls and goats as an offering not only for the sins of the people but also for their own sins. But they had to come in every year over again because guess what? Right after we did that offering, we started sinning again. And we need another offering. Well, those offerings, the Bible says in chapter uh, 10 and verse 1, uh, that, that actually in verse 4, that the blood, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus, by his one offering, not of the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, by the offering of his own blood, forever has taken away the sins of his people. So this, this whole book, right up until the verses that we read, starting at verse 19 in, in chapter 10, is telling us and comparing uh, the old covenant and how Jesus is the fulfillment, how he is the greater than. And then for the rest of the book, starting with the verses that we looked at and we'll look at in the next little bit, in these verses, he's telling us now, because this is true, you need to know not only... That, that you have an anchor that you can hold on to, but you need to know how to cling. You need to know how to cling to the anchor of your soul, which is Jesus Christ. So I see three things in these verses that we are encouraged as believers to cling tightly to. The first is in verse 22, where he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to who? Draw near to what? Draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Christ. So that's my first point today. Believers cling to Christ. Believers cling. They hold tightly to. They, they embrace. They get beside. They get near. They get with Christ. Believers Draw near to Christ. Look, look at chapter 9, and I'm going to read a few verses here, starting at verse 23 of chapter 9. Scripture says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's talking about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, not just the tabernacle, 
not just the temple that the Jews built, but holy places, not holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is now in the presence of God, advocating for believers on your behalf. He is a better lawyer than Johnny Cochran. He is better than F. Lee Bailey. Amen. He is the one. He is the only lawyer that's guaranteed to win every, every case because the evidence that he brings before the Father is his own blood. He says, I paid it. And they cannot be condemned for a crime that I've already paid for. So he advocates on behalf of his people. Verse 25 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has finished it. On the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is done. I have completed the work that the Father gave me today. So now the Bible says, as believers, we draw near to Christ. We draw to the presence of God himself in Jesus Christ. We are able to do that as, as his believers. Let, let let, let me use an illustration. Um, now, some of you are Monopoly players. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Some of you are cutthroat Monopoly players. I mean, it's like, it's like, I don't know what happened to the Holy Ghost, but when you're playing Monopoly, like the Holy Ghost just left the room for a little bit because you get cutthroat on the Monopoly table and you just got hotels on boardwalk. And this person that you say you love, who's struggling, they got some 50 little, little blue $50 bills, they got some little, little yellow $10 bills, and some, you know, they got some of those little bills, and they don't have too much on the board, and they land on boardwalk, and you say, you need to pay me $2,000 right now. I want my money now, but I don't, have, I want my money, I want it right now. So you demand your $2,000, and, and they start, like, taking houses off of Atlantic <laughs> Avenue and Ventnor that no one ever lands on anyway, and, and, and they turn over the electric company, and that's just $75. That's all they get. You know, B&O Railroad, they get $100. So they're trying to get up all the money they can. And when they give you all these little bills, you're trading it into the bank for those nice orange $500 bills, you know, and you, 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 you've got like all the 500s from the bank and you think you are big stuff now. So, so it, it's hard to play you in, in Monopoly because you're just cutthroat like that. But now you've got a stack of $500 bills. They may be orange, but they're $500 bills. You say, I am big and bad. I just, I just swamped everybody in Monopoly. I'm going to go celebrate. I'm going to Macy's. I'm going to go to the jewelry counter at Macy's, and you go to the jewelry counter, and you plunk down your little orange $500 bills, 
and say, I want that one right there. What will that get you at Macy's? I'm going to tell you what it'll get you at Macy's. It'll get you kicked out of Macy's. That's what it'll get you. Because you didn't have the right currency. You didn't have the right currency. The only thing that you can... They they need real money in Macy's or a real credit card that actually works, right? In your name with your signature on it, right? So, So you brought the wrong currency and you don't get the product. The problem that we have many times in drawing near to God. We, we don't even often have an appreciation for what this privilege means. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we are allowed to draw near to the presence of God. It's crazy because throughout the Old Testament, we're told no one can see the face of God and live. How are you going to get as a sinful person into the presence of a holy and perfect God and not be destroyed. If you go in his presence, you'll be destroyed. There's a great illustration of this in the book of Esther. Uh, The book of Esther is, I believe, the only book in Scripture where you never see the name of God mentioned. And yet, if you read that book, you see God's fingerprints all over it. And in the book of Esther, there was a wicked man named Haman, Uh, Esther had an uncle named Mordecai, and and Esther became the queen, and uh, Haman hated the Jews, and he particularly hated uh, Mordecai, and so Haman came up with this plot and had the king sign into law a law where all the Jews in the kingdom would be destroyed. They would all be killed and allowed to be killed on a certain day that was set. Mordecai found out about it, and she, uh, she sent a me- he sent a message to Esther, and he said, you're the queen and all like that, but this is going to happen. The decree has, has gone forth, and, and she sends a reply back to him and says, well, what can I do? No one can go before the presence of the king unless he's been summoned, and if you go before the king and you're not summoned by the king, you will be killed. Unless he holds out the golden scepter. And so uh, Mordecai says, Esther, who do you think you are? Just because you're in, the, you're in the king's palace, do you think you'll be spared as well? You're a Jew also. You'll be killed as well. And so Esther says, do this. I want you to go and tell all the Jews to fast for three days. And after three days... Esther chapter 5 says these words. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. We have here a picture in Scripture, and it was not insignificant that after they fasted for three days, Jesus was in the grave for three days, but after three days, she went before the king. She, doesn't, she didn't just go before the king any old way. She was dressed 
in uh, her royal garb as the queen. Jesus comes dressed in the majesty of his glory and his might before the Father. And when the queen is there, the king holds out the golden scepter and says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm accepting you. And whatever it is that you require, whatever it is that you want of me, up to half of the kingdom, it's yours. This is the reality of what we've been invited to as we're allowed to draw near to the presence of God. God says, what I have, I have for you, my people. You can draw near to me. Not only after you've done something good. Some of us are, are, have been so messed up in our theology, our practical theology, how we live our theology, not what we say we know, but practically how we live it out, that we feel like I can only come close into the presence of God after I've done good for a certain amount of time. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and we were getting into discussion, and it really kind of felt like that. It's like, I need to be in a certain place, or I really can't, I can't come close to God because you know, I haven't been doing so well, so I can't draw near to God now. And... and, and I, I, I was thinking of the scripture from uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. The scripture says there uh, uh, that to, to, to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us as the sons of light. God himself has qualified us. You did not qualify yourself. It's not I've done good for the last 10 days. Now I can draw near to God. So I said, the problem that, that you're experiencing and that many of us experience is this. We feel like when I'm going to come near to God, I've got to take out my resume. I've got to clean it up real good. I've got to make it look real nice. I've got to take off some of the nasty stuff that, that, that I did in the past. I've got to put on my really best resume that I possibly can, make sure the fonts are all just correct and, and it looks really good and impressive and bring that to God based on what you've done. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. What God has done, he took your resume. Now, the resume that he knows, he knows everything you've ever done. He knows every thought you've ever had. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that all things are laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows every stray thought. He knows every intention of your heart. And he knows it all does not smell good. He's very well aware of it. So he's taking, taking your resume. He is the ultimate shredder. And he shredded it up into the smallest pieces you can ever imagine. And then threw it into a fire and he said, done. So you say, well, then I have no resume. Wrong. <laughs> he took the resume of Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son, the God who created by His Word all that is, God Himself, He took His resume of perfect righteousness, a perfect walk with God, who had encountered every sort of temptation that you and I encounter, and more and more and more of it, and never sinned. You know, his, sometimes we wonder, well, how could Jesus be so tempted? But it, think about it this way. They just had the big storm down in Louisiana. And by God's grace, the levees uh, that they built in New Orleans, at least, not some of the ones south or north of the city, but the ones that they built actually held the water, right? 
So the more water comes, the more pressure there is against that levee. Can you imagine, you, you, you've never, you, you, you're withholding and, and, and stopping sin day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The pressure is there. Satan is there in every way to come against you. That pressure is great because you've never broken the levee at all to let just a little water in. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. And when we come into the presence of God, it's his resume we present. And so he says to us in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 6, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace. When? Not when I've done well for three weeks or four weeks or two days or eight hours or whatever our arbitrary belief is that I have to do good for a certain amount of time before I can go into God's presence, but that in the worst hour, the cataclysmic time of my life, when I've messed up everything, he says, draw near now and find grace and find mercy to help you in your time of need. Something to hold on to. Believers cling to Christ. We draw near to Christ based on his finished work. Secondly, believers cling to their confession. Believers cling to their confession. Read verse 23 with me. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast, he says, to our confession without wavering. This book was written in a time of immense persecution of the church. Immense persecution. In AD 70, the Roman army, well, actually starting somewhere in late 67 and, and 68, the Roman army under Titus, who was later to be uh, the emperor, surrounded the city of Jerusalem with four legions of the Roman army, the greatest army in the world at the time. And they surrounded Jerusalem in order to crush it. And so as this book is being written, perhaps that's already begun. Even if that hasn't quite begun, there was also a persecution under Nero after Rome had a great fire in A.D. 64 and and the emperor Nero blamed the Christians for it. And one of, the, one of the things he did besides sending them to the lions was also he would put them on poles and use them as torches to light up the night sky of Rome. They knew what persecution was about. And they were in the midst of this growing, growing persecution. And the apostle says in this verse, let us Hold fast to our confession without wavering. Hold fast to it. Our confession is what we say. Our confession is what comes out of our mouth. Are you willing to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Are you a person that talks much about this Christ, much about this God, much about the one who saved you from sin, death, hell, and from the wrath of God. Are you one who talks about him much? Or do you talk little? He says, hold fast without wavering. 
Sometimes it's, it's easy to waver, isn't it? Some of, you are, some of you are brand new students in Temple or at other schools. And perhaps you'll find out if you haven't already found out. Perhaps you went through it as a Christian in high school. But now you're on a college campus where uh, Christianity is looked down on as a crutch at best for weak people that don't have sharp minds and can't deal with truth. So you're going to be a Christian Ah, that's something to mock. You believe that Jesus paid it all. You believe in this Bible. It's the word of God. And they'll, they'll tell you 50 different ways to Sunday why it's not the word of God and why Jesus never really rose physically from the dead. And they'll go through all these things to quote unquote prove this and, and make a mockery of Christianity. The question is, will you stand up and say, I believe and I know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who by his work has saved me and I put all my chips in one basket, and that basket is named Jesus. Will you stand up? Will some of the older folks stand up when, when you're at your job and, and people just think that the brand of Christianity that you have, I mean, it's all right to, to know Jesus and keep it quiet on the side, take that somewhere else, but because you love Jesus, you talk about it all the time. Are you willing to go through what you have to go through for that. Well, if you talk little about Jesus, you should not delude yourself that you love him much. We talk about what we love. Not because we have to, but because the scripture says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When someone loves something, they're going to talk about it or someone. They talk about that thing incessantly, right? Do you really love Jesus, but you hardly ever talk about him? Really? That, that doesn't hold water at all. So, so the issue with that would be not to say, well, okay, Pastor Larry said, I don't talk about Jesus enough, so that means I don't love him. So from now on, September 2nd, 2012, um, at 1.15 in the afternoon. From now on, I'm going to talk about Jesus a lot. And that will prove to Pastor Larry that I really love him a lot. Guess what? What Pastor Larry thinks doesn't matter at all. That gets you zero points with God. <laughs> it gets you absolutely nowhere. So we don't strategically now begin to talk more about Jesus, so that means we love him more. What we do is we press into reading God's word. What we do is begin to talk to God a lot, talk to God a lot. That's called prayer. What we do is hang out and get near to, and we'll talk about it in a minute, with other people that can't help but talk about Jesus all the time. They love him a lot. They've read his word. They have a little bit of maturity, perhaps beyond our own. And, and, and we, we get around those people, and we, we pray, and we read his word, and we gather with the saints. And guess what begins to happen? We begin to love this Jesus so much so that now we can't help but talk about him. Hold fast, he says, to your confession without wavering. You don't change no matter where you're at. Are you the same person on Sunday morning after church as you are on Monday morning around the coffee pot at work or in school? Are you the same person or does it change? Hold fast to your confession of faith, of hope 
without wavering, no change. Why? How can you do that? The last part of the verse tells us how. He says, you can do that because the one who promised is faithful. <laughs> Jesus is faithful. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This salvation is better than you can imagine. And he says, hold on to that without wavering. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says these words, whoever confesses me before people, I will confess before my father. But if you don't confess me before men, neither will I confess you before my father. Don't, don't delude yourself into thinking that the only time I talk about Jesus is on Sundays or perhaps if I'm in a life group a little bit here or there. But the rest of my life, I, I'm not I'm not talking about him. Don't delude yourself to think that you love him more than you actually do. Fall in love with Jesus so you can't help but confess him. I saw uh, the movie The Shawshank Redemption not too long ago. Some of you have seen that movie. Um, Morgan Freeman is in it with with some other guys, and he's a long-term prisoner. He's been in prison for over 30 years. And he does not want to get out because he says at one point, I'm an institutional man. In other words, I know how to operate in here. I've been here since I was a young, a young man, 20 years old. Now it's 30 plus years later, they're going to let me out. I don't know how to operate on the outside at all. He sees himself as an institutional man. And so uh, as the movie progresses, he finally does get out. Uh, he didn't really want to, but at this point, he gets out of prison, and uh, he gets a job bagging groceries in a, in a market, and uh, you see him, he's, he's working real hard, he's bagging the groceries, and he puts his hand up and, and, and asks the boss over here, he says, boss, I, I, I need to go to the bathroom, I need, he says, you can go, and then the boss brings him near, and he says, you don't have to tell me. Every time you need to go to the bathroom, you can just go. And then you hear Morgan Freeman's voice as the narrator. Uh, and he's, he's basically saying, because I was locked up for so long, he, he says, basically, I couldn't get a drop without permission. <laughs> I can't go to the bathroom without permission. That's what he's learned that's the way he's been institutionalized. That's the way many Christians have begun to believe that without, without some special dispensation of, of God's permission, that you're not worthy to confess his name. But the reality is Jesus Christ has done everything on your behalf. And he calls you at any time, at any moment, at any place to call on the name of the great and mighty God who has saved you from all of your sins. And you can say his name and you can call on him. You don't need permission. You got permission at the cross. You got the permission at the resurrection. And he gave you his Holy Spirit. Amen. So, so not only... Do we uh, cling to Christ and cling to our confession? But lastly, as Christians, as believers, we cling to the congregation of God's people. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider 
how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a very interesting uh, section here and in, in some ways, especially the beginning of verse 24, it's difficult to translate from the Greek. The, the Greek literally says at the beginning of verse 24, um, and let us consider one another. That's the first thing it says, the word order there. It says, and let us consider one another. So, so what, what does that mean practically to us as believers? It means that our life as believers does not center around me. That I am not the center of my own universe, and I am not the one who says, I want to know and I have to know that all of my needs are met in a certain way, in a certain time, in, in order to ever think about anyone else, it's got to be all straight with me first. The Bible says just the opposite. It says, consider one another. That word there, consider, means uh, to, to notice others. It means to contemplate about other people. So I'm not just acknowledging your presence as a body or as a person, but the Bible says, notice others, contemplate about them, think about them, consider them, know their weaknesses. Why? Not so you can exploit them, but know their weaknesses, know their frailties, know their hurts in order that you may interact with them in a way to build them up in their faith. Know others. Think about others. In another place, the scripture says, think of others more highly than yourself. Right? In Philippians chapter 2. So the Bible calls us not to be self-centered, but to be Christ-centered and to be other-centered. You will not make it as a believer in Christ unless this is true in your life. He says, consider others. And then he says, uh, he uses an interesting word here in verse 24 where he says, consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now, the word there for stir up is a word that's often used with a negative connotation in Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's used in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, when it talks about Paul and Barnabas having contention over what to do with Timothy. Uh, they, they, they had a spat, they had a fight about what are we going to do with, with young Timothy. And Paul wanted to do one thing, Barnabas wanted to do something else, and they had contention. Same word is used there. So what's used here, it says in the ESV, to stir up. In the King James and some of the older versions, it says provoke one another. Even in some of the other newer versions, it says spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, um, Spur one another makes me think of a horse and, and a cowboy with spurs on, right? Now, you may think those boots look really cool and shiny with those big boots with the spurs on it. They may look cool and shiny to you. But if you're a horse and, and that, 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 that rider wants to go faster, he kicks those spurs into the side of the horse and it hurts. 
And, and that helps the horse to know you got to move a little bit. Now, if I tried that, I'd probably be on my back with broken bones everywhere. But he says, spur one another on, provoke one another. So, so it's interesting that he uses this word. He says, in the community of God's people, we need sometimes to be in each other's faces because we love people enough to speak truth. We love people enough to, to stir them up and to deal with reality in their lives. We just don't let things go. That's hard. That is not, unfortunately, that is often not the way, not only in the world, but in the church. We just let people go in sin and in mess, and we don't confront it, and we don't deal with it at all, and because to do so would, would make my life a little bit more messy. But if I consider one another, if I consider others more than myself, I realize that it is my duty as a brother in Christ to, to warn, to help, to admonish, to do whatever I need to do to help my brother move in love and good deeds to serve Christ. So he says there, stir one another up. In, later in verse 25, he says, but encouraging one another. So that's the word of encouragement there, which also means to come alongside of, to be with. So, so what we're called to do as believers is to cling to others in Christ, to stay near them, to spur them on, to provoke them to love and good deeds, to encourage them, to be with them. And in the, at the beginning of verse 25, he uses these words. He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This is a warning. The warning is that believers are not to neglect meeting together. Now, in part that, yes, that means coming together to worship God and to hear His Word on a, on a Sunday. That's, that's what we do every Sunday here. Yes, that's what it means in part, but it means so much more than that. Right? Because it says, spurring one another on, considering one another, knowing each other well, encouraging one another. So that means intimate involvement in the life of other believers. If you don't have that, he's going to warn them, starting in verse 26, that you're in serious jeopardy as a, as a so-called believer in Christ. If you think, I don't need to meet with other believers. I, other people need to, I get it, but... But I, I really don't need to. So let me just, I want to look at that for a minute where he says, not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some. Why in the world would that be the habit of some who call themselves by the name of Christ? Well, this is written first century Jewish context. And now the unthinkable happened if you're a Jew. Now Gentiles are coming in. To, to, to worship alongside of you. If you were a first century Jew, a Gentile, you could call them a dog. You could say they are, they are nasty, unworthy. We have nothing to do with them. We will not eat with them. We will not bring them in our houses. Gentiles, we have nothing to do with. The law says so, a misappropriation of God's law. So they're dealing with that. Many of them don't want to come together with Gentiles and, and, and the writer here says, meet together. You're not better than anybody. 
You think you're better? He says, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. You're all one new man in Christ. So three reasons quickly why people sometimes fall into this trap of neglecting coming together with other believers. The first thing is a feeling of superiority. You know, uh, Christ called these crazy dudes to be his apostles. He called fishermen with no education. He called a tax collector who, who would be considered by other Jews to be a traitor to the Jewish people. He also called Simon the Zealot, who was one who wanted to overthrow Rome, and he called them all to come together and serve him and serve Christ. So what happens is sometimes people feel like, well, I understand that some other people, they need to come together all the time, but Really, honestly, for me, it doesn't take all that much. Me and Jesus are good. Some of you have walked with Christ for a long time may think, you know what? I put in my 30 years. I've been faithful in church. I have, I have done it all these years. Now it's time for me to chill. I'm going to be a retired Christian. I still love Jesus, but I'm going to love him on vacation. Well, you may be able to retire from a job. I hope you can someday. But when you retire as a believer in Christ, you retire in, other, in order to serve God more and to be with his people more, not less. You're freed up to serve him more. Some people feel like, well, you know, there's a lot of people in that church who uh, it's not like, you know, this club I could belong to has a higher status of people. Uh, a, a people that I can connect with in business a little bit better. I can't waste all of my time with these church folks who are just scrounging to make it by. I can connect and network over here. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you had it going on this way or that. But he says, come together as God's people. That sense of superiority dies at the cross. Yes. Secondly, not only is it superiority that keeps people sometimes... But sometimes it's just a fear of association. I don't want to be seen with this one or that one. Not only in a church context, but perhaps in your campus context, your work context, or your family context. You've got this Christian who talks about Jesus all the time. And you don't want to be associated with them because they're like this crazy Christian woman, crazy Christian man. And it's like, well, I just, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm an I'm a undercover Christian. No, I'm, I want to be the quiet Christian. It's kind of like not wanting to be with Uncle Joe at the family reunion. You know, Uncle Joe, he does, does, he's not just drinking a beer, but he has a six-pack in his hand. And Uncle Joe just walks around like that, and he's a little drunk most of the time. And, and he's the crazy uncle that you want to stay far away from because you know if you get in a conversation, it's going to last two and a half hours, and all you want is a piece of chicken, but you can't leave Uncle Joe because he's trapped you. You've all been with Uncle Joe. But some of us treat believers like they're Uncle Joe. And yeah, look, some believers are a little crazy. I know I am. I know sometimes I, people are like, oh, Pastor Larry, stop. I know sometimes my family's like that. Oh, gosh, how come you're in ShopRite singing out loud in the frozen food aisle? Can you be quiet, Dad? I'm like, my bad, my bust. I'm sorry. You know, but... but but so, so we disassociate because it's not the cool folks. What about on campus as well? 
Will you associate with believers? You need to. And lastly, a lot of times, this is what it comes down to, laziness. Don't love sleep more than you love Jesus. <laughs> Don't love sleep more than you love Jesus. And, 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 and even not just talking about Sunday mornings, but in a couple weeks we're going to start life groups all over again. And, and we, wanna, we, we want every person who's committed to Christ that comes to Epiphany Fellowship, our goal is that everyone will be in a life group. Now, some of you may not be able to go. You may have schedule conflicts, and, and we realize that that can be the case. But if there's a way, the, the, the thought process should not be, how can I rule it out, but what can I possibly do to rule it in? How, is, there, is there a way, if there is, that I can change my schedule in order to be at one of the groups is there a way I can do it? Find a way. Because what happens in those groups is not just a little time of nice Bible study and we go on. But that's the place where we encourage one another. Where we love one another. Where we support one another. When we help one another. When we get to know one another on a much deeper basis than we otherwise would. So you're, if you're plugged in here on Sunday morning, that's great. But that's not enough. You need to plug in, and, and I'll just say this, even if you can't do a life group, if you have a legitimate reason why you can't do that, you need to find a way to plug in significantly to the lives of other believers in a way that you're rubbing off on them in Jesus' name, and they're rubbing off on you in Jesus' name. You need to do that. Believers cling to the congregation. Ignatius said, when you meet frequently... And in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown. And his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness and faith. Good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words. He said, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Do you think that's true? Is that real in your own life? Or is it something that's easy to take for granted? Bonhoeffer was writing from Germany after Hitler had become the Fuhrer and taken over power. And the Nazi government had institutionalized the state church. He was running a, an illegal seminary to train young men to be pastors who don't kowtow to the Nazi regi regime, but who speak the truth of Christ without fear. It ended up costing him his life. But in, in that place where he could get busted and jailed for being with other believers and talking about the things of God, in, in that place he said that it is a source of incomparable joy and strength. And then he says, how else can we stir one another to love and good deeds unless we meet together? And when we meet, it should not be for glib conversation, but for godly consecration. Centered around the word of God and prayer to God. And all the more as we see the day of his return drawing nigh. This is the reality of the Christian church. As the writer laid out 
all this great, these great doctrinal truths of how Jesus is the, the, the greater than Moses. He is the greater sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is the offering itself. How does that come together? It comes together like this. Believers cling to Christ. Believers cling to their confession of hope in Him. And believers cling to the congregation. They cling to brothers and sisters in Christ and declare His praises in their life. I don't have time to go into a few other verses, but if you look at the verses below that, there's a sober reminder of the reality of what it means if we neglect these things. I'll just read this verse. He said, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, as you read the rest of the verses after that, I don't have time to exegete it well with you. But most commentators believe, and I agree, that this isn't just talking about some struggle you have with sin, but it's talking about apostasy. When you've turned your back on God, you knew you had the knowledge of the truth, and you turned back, and he says, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin anymore. That's the worst news you will ever, ever hear. I pray no one here will ever have to hear that news. Because that means there's no longer hope. And he says, if you neglect these things, if you cease to cling to Christ, if you cease to cling to your confession of hope, and if you cease to cling to the body of Christ, then you're in danger and great peril. Christ has more for you than that. So cling to him. Cling to his body. And proclaim Him with your mouth and see the salvation of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and we are thankful that we have one Savior and one Lord. We don't have hope anywhere else and we don't need hope anywhere else. Christ is more than enough. He is our all in all. We thank you, Lord, that you are not only all we have, but you are all we need. We pray, Father God, that you will strengthen your people, that we will be those who proclaim your word with faith and hope and joy and who hold tightly to the one who has held to us first. Lord, our faith in the end is not in how strong our grip is, I can hold tightly to you. But Lord, our faith is in this, that you have held tightly to us. And you promised, and you are faithful, that you will not let us go. We give you glory, we give you honor, we give you praise for this, Lord God. Have your way in and among your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.